Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Bramlick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Now, it, over the past few years, we've been um, looking at a range of issues to do with, uh, with extremism, particularly as uh, we've come through the coronavirus period and there have been uh, various protests and online, uh, online forums and, and other things where what we would loosely call extremist tendencies have been expressed. Some of those have been um, acted on, but other others have just been verbalised behind the scenes online, etc. One of the issues that's been spoken about and written about in recent times is how people use certain tools to evaluate um, individuals who may appear to be threatening because of the views they hold and whether, in fact, they are... Um, a threat to society because of that. Now, I'm talking to um, somebody who's well-versed in uh, the the way in which certain tools are used and ought to be used. That's Peter Lowe, who's the principal consultant of Renesis Consulting and Training. Uh, she trains people in the use of these tools, and she's going to explain a little bit about how this stuff actually works. Peter, thank you so much for joining me for this particular chat. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, before we go into the substance of the issue, because there's been a bit of chatter about a report that Home Affairs has released under Freedom of Information about a couple of methodologies in particular, um, Bernice's consulting and training is you. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Such a great question. Um, so I do a range of things. Uh, uh, a lot of um, contracting with international organisations, uh, UNODC, working with um, UN IOM in Iraq at the moment. Um, and then I do some, some work with smaller organisations as well back home. So I do some consulting with Victorian Youth Justice around particular cases they have. And I do a lot of work for the courts. So um, I, I do a lot of reports for court in terrorism-related matters. Uh, so some of the HATO applications, um, some bail applications and sentencing matters as well for different terrorism cases. You find up to your eyeballs in, in, in looking at things uh, in that space. Um, if, we can, if I can begin the point, that we're going to touch on today by, by making an observation. Um, my father's a builder, um, or was a builder, uh, and different tools have different purposes. Um, Correct. Yeah, you, you use a trowel to, uh, to put mortar on. You, um, you use a you hammer to, to hammer nails. You all sorts of things. So each tool has its own characteristic, and has its own purpose, has its own task. What are the tools that we're talking about here in the context of this particular public debate, if you will, um, in assessing uh, people who are potentially threats to society? Yeah, great question. Look, I just want to start by saying I'm a practitioner. So um, I'm not an academic, I don't do research, but I certainly understand enough about research to understand how to apply that research and how to think about research critically, because not all research is equal either. Um, 
So, I mean, research is just the process of finding information and putting it all together, really. Um, so I just want to put that out there. There are different tools that get used in a practitioner space when we're talking about risk and risk of anything. And we could be talking about, um, you know, I mean, they're most commonly used in um, in the prediction of offending behaviour. So it comes from a more justice lens. Um, and there's there's these tools which give us predictive validity. So they're, they're, they're what's called actuarial tools. They can actually tell you with a certain degree of certainty <laughs> who is going to go ahead and commit another offence, for example, or and, and they're usually used in the, in the offence space. There's another group of tools um, which don't have predictive validity. They don't have the same statistical base behind them. Um, but they're tools that are useful in helping a practitioner to structure the way they consider risk. And then there's unstructured professional judgment, which is practitioners just on the basis of their skills and knowledge going through and deciding what they think the risk might be. <clears throat> For a whole bunch of reasons, there are no predictive tools in the terrorism space. Uh, we, we don't have enough data for anything to become statistically predictable at this stage. And also, you know, and it's been noted by a lot of people, um, we probably don't want predictive validity in this space. There are so many factors that impact on someone acting on terrorism that predictive validity tells you on the statistical basis that this person who presents with these particular factors that a person who presents with these particular factors has this amount of likelihood of going on to commit an offence. It doesn't actually tell you about the individual that's in front of you, though. So there might be particular issues for that individual which may, may be more or, predict, more or less predictive of that risk. And especially when it comes to terrorism and the fact that we know it is such an individual process, even though we uh, in the space have an understanding of the things that impact on someone's likelihood, um, we still don't know for sure what the makeup of any of that is, how likely some of those things are, and the likelihood changes between individuals. So what, what might really motivate someone doesn't really motivate someone else. So it's so personal and individualised. I think to have predictiveness in this space would really take away from what we understand about the individual nature. So fair to say that the, that the report that's been released, uh, lightly dubbed the Connor Report, although there was another author as well, um, uh, criticizes the fact or has been reported to criticize the fact that there isn't predictive validity in those in, in the tool. Um, and the tools that they looked at were the Vera 2R and the radar, which was an Australian developed tool, interestingly developed off the Vera 2R tool. Um, and it, you know, there has never been any claim anywhere that the Vera 2R is predictive, nor that the radar is predictive. In fact, the radar was more developed as a case management tool. So as a tool to help design interventions to lower risk of individuals who were um, either seen to be engaging in violent extremism or seen to have vulnerabilities in a pathway to violent extremism. Um, so I think that that's, that's the statement that I think I need to make clearly up front is that courts in Australia have not been hoodwinked. In every report I've ever written and every report I've ever seen, practitioners have been very clear to the court about the limitations of the tool. Um, having said that, you know, I mean, I think Arguably, the, tool, the report should have been released much earlier than it was because it definitely does influence practitioners' decisions about how they use it. It's information that's useful. Um, but also, given that the report has only just been released, it hasn't been through a peer review process either, um, which is one way that we make sure that research is both methodologically sound and that the outcomes, you know, 
can be considered as relevant. So it, it still has a process to go to go through, um, noting that even the authors recognise the limitations of the, of the report. So I think there's a few factors that got conflated. And for me, the really dangerous thing that's happened is some of the reporting that's came out, particularly recently, where the headlines sort of indicated that there was some uh, in, in um, inference in, in the tool that uh, neurodiversity was a risk factor for terrorism. And that's just completely harmful and irresponsible reporting uh, in the space entirely. So that's um, that's kind of my summary of what, <laughs> what my thoughts are about this at the moment. Um, how do you think we need to think, we need to approach looking at um, these the thinking tools, if you like, these frameworks. Um, yeah. Uh, if we're if what we're saying, if what we're saying is uh, these frameworks are designed to help us think through a problem, they're not designed to um, give us a definitive answer to a problem. Um, how do we? What sort of words would you wrap around the idea of how you would want people to think about this stuff? Look, I think it's interesting you use the analogy of a builder before. Um, and yes, you have to use the right tool for the right job. So as a builder, you need to know the variety of tools and which tool is best suited to which job. Uh, but also not every builder uses the tool the same. And so, you know, if you want your house built really well, you spend a lot of time looking for the right builder even though they may have bought the exact same hammer as another builder. So I think it also comes down to understanding that because this space in particular has lots of nuance and uh, it is forever changing and growing in that knowledge, practitioners is, is also just as important as the tool that you use in the space. Um, and the knowledge and skills and experience of that practitioner mean that they might, may either use that tool really well or not use it well at all. So. Um, you know, one of the things, and, and I can say this particularly for the Vera 2R training, is that it's a recognition that the tool has to be used by the right person in the right circumstances and the tool in and of itself assists that practitioner to structure their professional knowledge. It doesn't give them professional knowledge. The, I mean, what risks are there in people approaching these tools in a, a or approaching assessments of um, that come out of uh, the use of these tools, rather, in a definitive way. I mean, if you've got an indication of certain things or factors about a person's behaviour, um, how much credence do you need to place on that assessment, or can you place on that assessment? Um, yeah, I mean, the tool itself won't tell you that. The credence, and the tool is meant to be used in conjunction with other uh, useful tools for that, that particular assessment. So, for example, in some of my assessments, I've used other tools, the Vera and additionally other tools such as the TRAP-18, as well as relied on tools that may have been used by psychologists or psychiatrists to understand different presenting factors. So it's used in conjunction with all of the other information that you can gather and other tools. So it's not 
it's not like you can apply any of these tools and that tool in itself will give you the answer. It helps you structure your thinking about what the factors are and then as a practitioner you need to understand what other information do I need to help me make this assessment? Where are my information gaps? Where do I get that information? Uh, and sometimes that may be, um, you know, getting assistance with particular risk factors around terrorism, but sometimes it might actually be understanding more about particular ideological sets or having the particular nuance of understanding about different how different factors in, impact on behaviour. So as a practitioner, it's your job to understand what's the information that I need to make my assessment. So when I complete an assessment on an individual, it's my assessment. It's not the Vera2R tools assessment. The Vera2R provides one of the things that I consider when I'm making my assessment. Yeah. Much like if we go back to the builder analogy, you know, a builder will use a range of things to help form their assessment, what they know about different materials that they use. They may use a surveyor. They'll definitely, you know, go to an electrician. So they are the, they are the person responsible for pulling together all the pieces of information and then with their knowledge, skills and experience, are coming up with the plan or the design and then executing it. And I see that very much in risk assessment space that we we tend to rely on tools and even the most predictive of tools needs a professional to have oversight of that tool. A very good example of that, um, the wireless CMI, the Australian Adaptation, which is the tool that um, most youth uh, justice um, users in Australia, across Australia, to help them understand and present to court uh, risk factors for young people reoffending. Um, you know, it's not great at predicting um, reoffending for sex offending, for example. So um, the practitioner needs to know that, that practitioner needs to understand that then they then need to use yeah. another tool to help them understand that particular presenting issue or problem. And so um, we need to consider the, any of these tools, severe or otherwise, in how they fit into how a practitioner uses them. But ultimately, the risk assessment is the practitioners, not the tools. One of the issues you mentioned earlier is um, the the things that have been picked up on by reporters. Um, it's one thing to have an expert or people who have some expertise write a report. It's another thing for a separate set of eyes that are not necessarily experts to read it and highlight things that may, um, in the general course of events, not particularly, it, that, that may not be appropriate or could cause some further harm. Um, what are the, what, if any, thoughts do you have about what we need to do with you know, the media surrounding this kind of material? Uh, mm. in order to get some kind of, um, I guess, um, awareness uh, of how these things should be reported? That's a very tricky question. Um, look, I think... I, I thought as, so. As, yeah. As people in the space, we have... I believe the responsibility to call it out when we see it. Um, you know, if, if if there's irresponsible journalism, then I think we have a responsibility to call that out and and point out that it's irresponsible. That maybe um, you know, and I, and I think it's particularly difficult at the moment. And 
I don't think this country, uh, Australia, is any different to a, a lot of other countries that I've been to recently where the media is more and more politicised and weaponised um, and that makes it very difficult because they're no longer fact-finding, they're opinion-finding and reporting on different opinions rather than actual facts. Uh, so I think that there's a real problem with how the media actually reports on things um, to begin with. I don't know how much... Um, how much influence we can have on the way the media actually does things to begin with. But I think that we can have influence by calling things out when we see that it's just it's just irresponsible. Um, you know, headlines and seven second sound bites might be interesting for getting, you know, likes and follows, but it really doesn't help to um, further a useful and helpful conversation in a space where we need less finger pointing, um, we need less othering. So less polarising, uh, and we actually need more discussion about what the actual issues are so that people can understand it. I mean, if we don't do that, um, we contribute to increasing people's fear, um, making people feel less safe, uh, and that makes everyone less safe. If people believe that we're not even able to adequately inform a court about some of the risks that individuals might pose to the community, then, of course, it's going to make them feel unsafe. And when people are unsafe, they want to protect themselves. And I think we see a lot of that. And I've, you know, I've definitely seen some of it in a lot of the media reporting in terms of the protests over the weekend and how unhelpful some of the language has been that's been used. And all it seeks to do is further the divide between, um, you know, the majority of the population, which is unhelpful. We've covered a lot of ground in, in about 25, 30 minutes. Um, Peter, is there anything uh, else about the current climate you think is important for people to understand? Because it, um, there are times things get under the fingernails of experts and occasionally, um, you know, there are little things that pop up um, that, that annoy people that, don't always get asked at the time um, because I don't necessarily live in your head. <laughs> and that might be a good thing. That's a good thing. But, yeah, is there anything about the current climate that you think is important for people who don't normally have a conversation with someone like you to understand? Look, I do think, and because it's one of the things that I'm I'm sort of focused on at the moment in some of my international work around um, upholding the principles of human rights and rule of law, um, you know, I do think we have to come back to having some focus on what is it that we value collectively in terms of human rights and, and then applying those. And I've seen it, you know, in the terrorism space, you see it a lot. Um, you know, I've seen it with the debate around um, bringing the women and children home from our whole and our Roj. Um, and I think it's timely that we remind ourselves as a country what makes us so great. And we either uphold those principles and values and beliefs or we don't. And we have to have a bit of a conversation about what that means. And sometimes there are uncomfortable things to have to uphold, you know, actually valuing um, human rights uh, and what that actually means. And that doesn't mean just the humans we like. <laughs> that means human rights. Um, but, I, but I've always believed, and, and certainly, particularly in contexts like Iraq, um, it is that commitment to human rights that separates us from the others. And if we, 
if we find ourselves on a slippery slope where we're exceptionalizing human rights to some and not others, then ultimately, how far is it for us as as a society and a community until, you know, you know, we start to look like the very people that we're condemning. So um, I think that for me has been really important, especially as I, you know, I've been away a lot this year and I've watched from afar a lot of the media reporting in Australia and a lot of the um, a lot of the incidents that have occurred and a lot of the responses. And I'm just reminded that, you know, we're a very lucky country in Australia and um, we're lucky that we get to have these kinds of conversations. Um, so I really, I really do think it's time that we start to have a serious look at defining what we truly believe to be outside of communities' expectations and tolerance levels. And we have a process uh, in terms of rule of law for legislating against that. Let's talk about right-wing extremism. Let's have those conversations. What um, views are just abhorrent and what views are illegal? And, and that's, you know, that's a conversation that we have to have as a country and as a um, as a developed country that really does have the, the structures and the, um, the frameworks in place for us to have that in a really nuanced and helpful way. Um, and really start to think about, you know, I understand that there's fear around returning the women and children from our hole and our rod, and I understand there's complications. Trust me, I I, I live it in Iraq. Um, but, you know, for me, it seems to be that it it is reflective of what we as a country in Australia would like people to think of us as, and that if women have been, um, you know, if, if women have in any way offended, broken any Australian laws, which are the only laws that they've broken, um, then they face our judicial system, which is the same as every other uh, Australian citizen would would face. And, you know, what one of the three women who was returned at the end of last year has been charged. The, the process works if we let the process work, but we shouldn't condemn all of them because possibly some of them might be responsible for things. Um, so I do think that there's a couple of really big areas where as a country we need to think about our position and move forward together on that. Um, but I think that we're we're strong enough, we're smart enough, um, and we certainly as a country manage to negotiate our way through these things when we actually sit and look at them and are willing to have open, frank conversations about that. Um, you know, I think the same thing about the referendum at the moment. Let's not allow that to be hijacked. Let's have the, the frank conversations. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that I think sets Australia apart in, in the sense that we, we, we do collectively manage to find our way through these things like COVID. So I would hate to see for that to change. Um, but as I say, I'm watching these things from afar. So I'm taking a very global view, not a, not a, um, not a specific or detailed view of them. So I'm very interested to get back and be part of that conversation and debate. Now, if somebody wants to know, um, know more about the work you do, um, after listening to this, where can they go? Yeah, that's it's a great question. It's probably the thing I'm the worst at is uh, keeping up to date with um, social media and, and websites. I do have a website, um, um, but mostly um, most of my updates will probably be on LinkedIn. It's it's the forum that I find most useful to share with other um, people in the debate and sort of post interesting issues. Um, so my my website online, I sometimes maybe not recently have updated it, but otherwise LinkedIn, I, I try my best to keep up to date there. <laughs> okay, well, well, Peter Lowe says that you can keep track of Peter Lowe on LinkedIn um, on a regular basis. Peter, thank you so much for, for giving me giving up your time um, while you're in a rather exotic location doing important work. <laughs> 
Thanks, Tom. It's it's not as exotic as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Hope we can talk again. Thank you. <laughs>